deal. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And the virus went unabated for some essential workers, essential workers who cannot protect themselves with masks and social distancing, workers who kept working nonstop throughout the earliest and repeated outbreaks of the pandemic as the outside world depended upon the results of their labor. In fact, without their sacrifices, and often that means making the ultimate sacrifice, you likely would be unable to listen to this show right now, and we probably could not make the phone call necessary for today's guest to be on the show. Purposely kept invisible from us, we do not see how mining operations the world over are dominated, not by high-tech machinery, but the same brute human force that has been a part of mining since its very beginning. When it comes to colonialism and the slavery it brought along with it in places like Africa, very little has changed over the last 500 years, despite the alleged end of imperialism on the continent. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Siddharth is an author, researcher, and activist on modern slavery. He is a British Academy Global Professor and an Associate Professor of Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery at Nottingham University. He has authored three books on modern slavery, 2009's Sex Trafficking, Inside the Business of Modern Slavery, his 2012 work, Bonded Labor, Tackling the System of Slavery in South Asia, as well as Modern Slavery, A Global Perspective, which came out in 2017. Siddharth adopted his book, Sex Trafficking, into a Hollywood film titled Trafficked, which held its world premiere at the United Nations in New York. The book Sex Trafficking also won the prestigious Frederick Douglass Prize at Yale University for the best nonfiction books on slavery. Across 20 years of almost entirely self-funded research, he has traveled from, from uh, to more than 50 countries to document the cases of several thousand slaves of all kinds. He advises several U.N. agencies and numerous governments on anti-slavery policy and law. You can follow Siddharth on Twitter at Siddharth Kara. You can find Siddharth on Instagram at Siddharth.Kara. Thanks to listener Patrick L. who suggested we have Siddharth on the show. I am your bitter, blind, broke radio show, Gap Tooth, radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will what were you up to this past weekend? Anything new in your world? Uh, let's see. Seven Nations I, soccer by chance? Or rugby, uh, I mean? Uh, yeah, caught the uh, fourth round of Six Nations rugby. Six, uh, sorry. Pretty good round. Um, again, Italy finally, you know, they haven't won yet, but they got the past Wales. like they shouldn't be kicked out of Six Nations. Yeah, yeah. there you go. And uh, France absolutely walloped England, which was a big surprise. Anything else new in your world this weekend? I had to go to Ikea, which... Uh, <laughs> That's I a disturbing a f- drive. It took a few years off my life, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it's um, almost impossible to find. It, yeah, and then almost impossible. It's so apparent off of 90, but yeah, impossible to get to. <laughs> you and can then, see it right there. 
and then impossible to find the specific thing you needed to go there for. <laughs> in this case, a new cover for a couch we're trying to keep in you know alive. <laughs> Due to cats, uh, dogs. So <laughs> little thing. Yeah, just bigger and a little grosser. My weekend was uh, actually productive, which never happens. That is until I got thoroughly distracted. My permanent girlfriend and I want to see some people who are very near and dear to us, and we assume they want to see us too. However, when we try to schedule a time when we might be able to hang out soon, they questioned if we should make any plans at all, given the fact that we are on, Will, the verge of economic and that thus societal and civilizational collapse. Keep in mind, we aren't talking about, like, making plans for five years from now or even five months from now. These plans are five weeks from now. They even went to want to know if we are stocked up on uh, water and non-perishable food. Not that collapse isn't inevitable, and I agree it's likely coming far sooner than most people think. But next month? I mean, who knows? Maybe they are correct and the end is nigh. But Will, how would you react if someone you love and, yeah, I guess, you know, who you love, who tells you, yes, I guess I guess we can hang out at some point in the near future. But, you know, the world is ending. So really, what's the point? What do you say <laughs> to somebody who's like, the world's going to end, so I can't make plans for next month. And it, it, what's the point anyway? Uh, I'll, you know, maybe you should stay at this one hotel because it's easy to cancel your reservations in case the world collapses. So what do you say to somebody like that? I, I don't think I give them a hug, Chuck. I, <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> it might be what they need more than my, my, uh, you know, my words. I know, exactly. I was like, I'm very... Both me and my girlfriend were very concerned about these people. We're like, are they? Is there some sort of suicide cult they're a part of now? I, I have no idea. They might be right. Who knows? In five right. weeks, the world could collapse. But I don't. Can oh. you spend your whole life thinking that right. way? I mean, what do I do? Do I pack a sweater for that? <laughs> right. Exactly. What should I be putting in my backpack when I leave my house? <laughs> it seems like a no backpack situation. It does. It really does. <laughs> More important than any of that, Will, what is this week's question from Hell for our listeners? This week's question... That should have been the question from Hell. <laughs> it really should have been. Um, this week's question from Hell is, how do you identify yourself? I should have worded this differently. I should have said, how do you self-identify? Ah, uh, yeah. Because everybody's saying, I look in the mirror. Yeah. We're you, getting a lot of those responses. Yeah. Our listeners are a bunch of trolls. <laughs> yes, they are. You, you, you show one thing you that gets under your skin and... <laughs> They keep picking at you it. You show a little weakness, and they're right there you've kicking you while you're You train them well, Chuck. <laughs> Thank you. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at uh, Chuck, or uh, sorry, at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from Hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. The t-shirt, the trucker's cap, the winner's the winner hat, the coffee mug, the face covering, the face mask, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the century, as well as the tote bag. Yes, there's a This Is Hell tote bag. You can see all that stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Will has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's hangover cure is uncertain. Uh, the terrible uh, 
Ghanaian clickbait website, pulse.com.gh, posted the article, What to Drink in the Morning After a Wild Night of Partying and Drinking. Do not go to that website. Yeah, it's the eternal question, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, uh, the story states, uh, try this coconut water, lemon, ginger root, and orange juice combination for a hangover cure. This recipe will help with your dehydration and ensure that you get enough vitamins throughout the day. All you need is two oranges, one inch long piece of ginger. Uh, the length is very important. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, one lemon and uh, exactly 50 millimeter, milliliters of coconut water. What is it with coconut water and, and hangover cures? It's always in there. It's always in there. Um, and me without a coconut. <laughs> Uh, the article explains when orange juice is digested, it has the an acid-neutralizing action and provides potassium to the body to help maintain normal fluid levels in our cells. Also, the electrolytes found in coconut water work wonders for preventing hangovers, and antioxidants in ginger can relieve nausea, and it also has a component that can lessen your symptoms. Lemons are a fantastic source of vitamin C, which can aid your body in more effectively eliminating the harmful consequences of alcohol. What the article does not explain is what to do with those ingredients. <laughs> there is no recipe. <laughs> it says there's going to be a recipe, and then there's no recipe. It's all buildup. It is. All hype. It I is. mean, isn't that what late capitalism's all about? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's the hype economy. <laughs> uh, what makes this week's hangover cure, apparently, is... Uh, making an unspecified drink with two oranges, one inch long piece of ginger, uh, a lemon, and 50 milliliters of coconut water. Apparently, you just mix those things together and you have a hangover cure. Exactly. Um, That's yeah, some recipe. Throw it Here, in a we'll blender. Just, or? We'll just give you the ingredients, and now you're on your own. Coming up on the show, your phone is the result of historically inhumane exploitation of child labor. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Former producer Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, will be giving us a peek at the past inside the present as he provides us with the historical context from the past to have a better understanding of our present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? This week, Sebastian introduces the first of several segments talking about the history of the Soviet Union and why portraying the peasant and worker empire as being all gulags and show trials is a misconception, even though there's some truth to it. <laughs> there's a lot of truth to it. And at the same time, our history and the way that we have learned about the Soviet Union is very, very inaccurate. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and talk about a great fortune the high-tech revolution has made trillions for those at the top of the cobalt profit chain a great fortune all built on a criminally abusive practice that leaves those at the bottom of the ladder stuck in what can be a deadly pit of desperation with little to no escape here to help us come to grips with how our gadgets that are supposed to be good for the climate are deadly for those who mine their special metal. Siddharth Kara is author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Welcome to This Is Hell, Siddharth. 
Uh, good morning. Thank you for inviting me. It's great having you on the show. Siddharth is an author, researcher, and activist on modern slavery. He is the author of several books, including 2009 Sex Trafficking, Inside the uh, Business of Modern Slavery, his 2012 work, Bonded Labor, Tra- Tackling the System of Slavery in South Asia, as well as Modern Slavery, A Global Perspective, which came out in 2017. You can follow Siddharth on Twitter, at Siddharth Kara, and find him on Instagram, at Siddharth.com. Thanks again to listener Patrick L., who suggested we have Siddharth on the show. So you start with a quote from 1914 by E.D. Morrell and his writing in History of the Congo Reform Movement. Such then was the main task, he writes, to convince the world that this Congo horror was not only and unquestionably a fact, but that it was not accidental or temporary or capable of internal cure to demonstrate that it was at once a survival and a revival of the slave mind at work of the slave trade in being. Morell had witnessed the export of rubber and the import of guns and manacles into Congo and understood the resources were being taken by force and recognized that early 20th century colonialism was much like the slavery that the British were claiming they ended over a hundred years earlier. Siddharth, to what extent today in the region Morel knew as Congo is resource exploitation by force imposed by uh, outsiders, how much is that still taking place? And how much can any exploitation occurring in Congo be compared to slavery? How fair is that kind of comparison? Well, um, you know, Morel um, and his um, his uh, anti-slavery uh, and anti-colonial uh, uh, colleagues had uncovered one of the great uh, human rights tragedies in history, and that was Leopold's genocidal ransacking, King Leopold, his genocidal ransacking of the Congo uh, for rubber, rubber which... Um, was used for automobile tires. Um, uh, the rubber tire had been invented in 1888, just a few years after Leopold got the Congo as a personal colony, and it happened to be sitting on one of the largest rubber tree forests in the world. Uh, and so the the, the scramble was on. Um, and the analogy is is painfully enduring because here we are in the midst of a second automobile revolution. Uh, the transition to electric vehicles. And once again, the Congo is sitting on more reserves of the most important resource um, than the rest of the world combined, in this case, cobalt. And once again, the people uh, and resources of the Congo are being ransacked and pillaged by foreign stakeholders, foreign powers. Um, So I think the question you've posed, you know, is what is happening today, slavery, um, uh, on par with what was happening in the past, and can we call it that? And the way I would answer your question is like this. Uh, for m- most of the history of slavery, slavery meant treating someone like property, hence the term chattel slavery, uh, and exerting power over them as if they were your property. Uh, you could do to them whatever you wanted. Um, and in the case of slavery, it meant extracting the value of their labor without compensating them. And what's happening in the Congo today uh, in the extraction of cobalt uh, is once again treating people like property. In fact, in some ways worse than property because life, the value of life has been diminished to almost nothing. If the people of the Congo who scrounged this cobalt out of the ground are injured or killed, they're simply replaced with the next poor, desperate, vulnerable family or child uh, in line 
uh, to keep the cobalt flowing up the chain to companies worth trillions. So yes, it is uh, akin to slavery, slave-like conditions, and the fact that it's taking place at a time where human rights are meant to be upheld and um, human dignity is meant to be upheld and we don't live in the era of colonialism and slavery that makes it all the more appalling. So did slavery then ever end? Well, it ended on paper, um, but it didn't end in practice. Uh, now, you can't own a person like property the way you could for much of human history. You, we, we can't buy and sell people anymore. That practice has been uh, universally outlawed and rejected around the world. But it doesn't mean that people aren't still treated that way. Uh, and in fact, much of the global economy, the underbelly of much of the global economy is populated by uh, this entire subclass of humanity that is exploited in conditions that are no better than the centuries of slavery uh, much of the global south endured during the peak era of the slave trade. Uh, so slavery, like any virus, has continued to evolve and morph and evade our efforts to inoculate civilization from this abhorrent practice. It persists and in a way, it's more uh, pernicious than ever because it persists beneath this veneer of paperwork that proclaims slavery has been abolished and human dignity is upheld across the global economy. So you go to Congo and you go to a cobalt mining site where an accident has happened and you write the soldiers are wild and wide-eyed as they point their weapons at the villagers trying to enter the mining area. Although they are desperate to reach their loved ones just as stones throw away, the villagers are denied access. What has happened here must not be seen. There can be no record or evidence, only the haunting memories of those who stood at this place where hope was lost. My guide urges me to stay at the periphery. The situation is too unpredictable. From the fringes, it is difficult to see the details of the accident. The craterous landscape is obscured by a leaden haze that refuses the en entry of light. And what you witness is the death of a child worker. It's an accident at a coal mining operation. Why must what happened there, why must this quote-unquote accident not be seen by the rest of the world? So, yeah, that was a cobalt mine, not a coal mine, but a cobalt mine. Oh, um, sorry about that. I thought I said cobalt. Oh, that's okay. It, it, the coal mining has another long history of uh, um, uh, problematic abuses, um, uh, but that we'll, we'll save that for another conversation. So, um, yeah, the, the, what happened, the reason, the reason that what's happening in the Congo and what happened at that place that I, that I talk about, that I write about in the book in Cobalt Red, um, uh, cannot escape is because the truth has to be obscured. You see, um, the companies at the top of the cobalt chain, that's big tech and EV manufacturers, uh, all proclaim that they uh, ensure the adherence to human rights standards all the way down to the bottom of their supply chains, including the mining of cobalt. Um, they all proclaim they have zero tolerance policies on child labor and forced labor and any kind of labor abuse. So the truth that none of that is true in terms of cobalt mining in the Congo, that truth cannot emerge because it means they're either dealing in falsehood 
or recklessly ignorant of the truth of their own supply chains. Either way, the truth has to remain hidden. And that's been the, the um, dynamic for slavery and colonialism for centuries. The, the truth must be obscured by the power brokers at the top of the chain and truth seekers who go down to find the truth uh, must be stopped. But ultimately, as it always does, truth does emerge, light does pierce through the veils of darkness and obfuscation. And when the world learns of a horror, uh, people of conscience come together to set, to set things right and to, to bring some measure of justice. That's been the history of the cycles of abuse and horror and then the advancement of truth and human rights um, across history. And that's what's happening now. And um, Cobalt Red is the first book to bring this truth out into the world um, through the voices of the Congolese people. Their voices are now being heard. And uh, it is my hope uh, and my firm belief that people of conscience will come together uh, uh, and build a movement that will set things right. So how important then is not being seen, is being invisible to the kind of exploitation that capitalism seems to depend upon? How important is this exploitation to the survival and the resilience of capitalism? Well, this, you know, I mentioned there's this subclass of humanity that ekes out this base existence in uh, a range of exploitative labor conditions from, you know, sweatshop labor, penny wage labor, all the way down to child slavery. You know, there's a spectrum of abuse, of course, at the bottom end of the global economy. And that's, you know, the, sh the clothes we wear, the food we eat, the jewelry we wear, the, the beauty products we use. I mean, it's, it's everything and including, very crucially, including our rechargeable gadgets and cars. And that truth has to remain hidden in order for this veneer of legitimacy of the capitalist global economy to be maintained. Because as the truth is revealed that much of the bottom end of the global economy is built upon the enduring exploitation of some of the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world, uh, then the entire logic and legitimacy of the global economic order uh, begins to untangle. Uh, and the fact that we've made little to no progress since colonial times uh, becomes glaringly and painfully evident. Uh, and, and then companies have to be held accountable. So they don't want to ever get to that point where they have to be held accountable for either not knowing or not addressing this um, abhorrent and appalling exploitation of, of vulnerable people poor people of color across the global, global South in slavery and slave-like conditions simply to boost profit and shareholder value at the top of the chain. So the cobalt that is being mined is for, you know, the cobalt that's being mined in the present and the, uh, everything that's been mined in the past that, where there are abusive working conditions. This, but what's being mined right now, it's, it's for the future in a way, because you were saying how oh, this is for the rechargeable batteries. And you write, there is a frenzy taking place in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a manic race to extract as much cobalt as quickly as possible. This rare silvery metal is an essential component to almost every lithium ion rechargeable battery made today. It is also used in a wide array of emerging low carbon innovations that are critical 
to the achievement of climate sustainability goals. Meanwhile, as a December Mangabey article reported on the other component in those batteries that are hoped to decrease our dependence on fossil fuels, quote, as the Bolivian government negotiates business dealings with foreign lithium companies, questions remain about the future of local desert ecosystems and the indigenous communities that steward them, steward them sounding very much like what is happening in Congo. Lithium extraction, often used for lithium-ion batteries, has been known to deplete and contaminate fresh water, impacting wildlife populations and the livelihoods of residents who rely on tourism and on salt mining. Is our dependence on both of these minerals why we don't see these kinds of extractive industries? Are we in denial that climate sustainability plans are in fact destructive to the planet, done in abusive and inhumane working conditions, even fueling wars, or again, does the public simply not know? Are we in denial or are we blinded by ignorance. Okay, there's a lot to unpack. So let's lay it all out here. Um, so everyone who's listening understands uh, what's at stake. Um, so cobalt is used, as you just noted, in the manufacture of almost every single lithium ion rechargeable battery made in the world today. So that means every smartphone, every tablet, every laptop, every rechargeable gadget, and crucially, almost every electric vehicle. Now, three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in a small little patch of the Congo. Uh, And that little patch of the Congo is characterized by the following reality. The people and environment in the cobalt mining area are being utterly and violently destroyed every day. Full stop. So our rechargeable lives are built on a human rights and environmental catastrophe in the Congo. And our pursuit of important climate sustainability goals, specifically vis-a-vis the transition to electric vehicles, is built on a human rights and environmental catastrophe in the Congo. Uh, As you noted with lithium mining, mining is a violence. uh, And in the Congo, um, millions of trees have been clear-cut to make room for giant, enormous open pit mines. Mining companies dump toxic effluents in the dirt, in the air, in the water. I've spent months on the ground and as you walk around, there's just this toxic brown haze everywhere. Your eyes burn, throat is scratchy. Water has been polluted. Animal stocks, fish stocks are polluted. There's a public health catastrophe taking place in the Congo. People are dying of cancers. There's a a range of birth defects uh, running rampant in the mining provinces. Uh, Neurological diseases, respiratory ailments, acute dermatitis. We are destroying the people of the mining provinces of the Congo, as well as their surrounding environment, in this frenzied scramble to feed cobalt up the chain to companies that keep pumping at us new phones and gadgets and insisting on this transition to electric vehicles without ensuring that the people and the environment at the bottom of the chain are not being destroyed along the way. So how can we pursue a sustainable green future at the expense and destruction of the heart? Siddharth, we lost you there for a moment, but uh, uh, you write that one must acknowledge the crucial fact that for centuries, enslaving Africans was the nature of colonialism. 
that acknowledgement about the nature of colonialism here in the United States, it, it seems to be what is at the heart of our current culture wars. Is the rest of the Western world going through a similar crisis of acknowledgement, acknowledging the role inhumane exploitative practices uh, play in economic growth and uh, in the essence of what makes wealthy Western nations wealthy? Is slavery still at the heart of our economic system and is the rest of the world having a problem acknowledging that just like here in the United States we're having that issue when it comes to acknowledging the role that slavery played in making America what it is today yeah absolutely so did, can you guys still hear me yes sir okay where, where did I get cut off earlier because what, what we were talking about is really important did, did you hear the end of my remarks I just want to make sure you no, it was the, it was the very end that we lost Okay. Okay. Fine. Okay. Good. Um, uh, so, I think I think the global North r- continues to be in uh, uh, considerable denial. Uh, I don't know whether it's willful denial or convene a denial of convenience or um, you know an actual purposeful um, unwillingness to acknowledge the amount of um, the, the persistence of slavery and slave-like exploitation at the blo- bottom of, our, uh, of the global economic order. And the, the reality is conti- the continuation of the exploitation of uh, poor African people, poor South Asian people um, at, at the bottom of the entire global economy is a way of, of boosting profits uh, for multinational corporations, um, enhancing shareholder value, you know, all the things that uh, capitalism needs to do and, and does uh, so, so well. And, and it requires, it requires a complete d- disavowment of the enduring nature of slavery and slave-like exploitation at the bottom of any number of global supply chains. Uh, and I think that's the reckoning that's at is at hand because truth seekers and human rights activists are clamoring for accountability at the top of the chain. You see companies at the top of the chain will say, well, you know, so my my garments or my mining or whatever is taking place 10,000 miles away. And it's it's someone else's responsibility to uh, ensure that conditions uh, are, are dignified. And, and what that fails to acknowledge is. The entire chain of events only exists because of the demand placed by companies at the top of the chain. Uh, The people and the environment in the Democratic Republic of the Congo would not be enduring enormous violence and destruction right now were it not for the enormous demand by big tech and EV companies for cobalt. So everything that's happening is a consequence of that demand. Yet these companies refuse to accept responsibility for what's happening. And I think that's the gap that has to be crossed. That's the chasm that has to be closed by human rights activists to to uh, uh, clamor for and ultimately achieve um, uh, requiring that these companies who create this enormous demand for cheap resources, labor, minerals, whatever it is, accept responsibility for the conditions at the bottom of their chain. Because when they don't, the inevitable outcome is the enduring persistence of slavery and slave-like exploitation. 
So what would you say to someone who was supportive of uh, the exploitation and the capitalism that is taking place when it comes to cobalt mining? What would you say to somebody who argues, look, it's not us. It's not us at the top of the profit chain when it comes to cobalt. It's not us that's creating that demand. It's the public's demand. It's the demand by our investors for us to seek and get profits and to capture profits. What would you say to somebody from the top of the profit chain if they said, it's not us, it's the demand by investors as well as the public that's driving this problem? Well, I would say that's the other, it's, it, they've got it the wrong way around. So, you know, consumer demand for, take a smartphone, for instance. I mean, how, um, how persistently are we marketed by these companies, the need, the compulsion to upgrade our phone every year because now it's got a slightly better camera. Now it's got a slightly faster processor or whatever, right? You know, there's a, there's a marketing component that pushes consumers um, to keep consuming, to feed into the profit monster uh, that these companies uh, rely on. Um, and the same with the transition to electric vehicles. You know, there are mandates now that, in 10 years, 15 years, there won't be any other thing, won't be anything but electric vehicles in many countries in the world to buy. Fine. Okay. But that can't be pursued. Those mandates can't be pursued if it means children are being buried alive in the Congo as a result, uh, or the entire Congolese uh, southeastern corner of the Congo is being obliterated uh, and polluted. How can we pollute their world to save ours? Uh, so it's 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 the other way around the, this sort of finger pointing that says, no, no, it, you know, consumers require all this stuff or investors demand it. I don't know of any right minded investor that would say, please ensure that your stock price increases consistently, even if it means mass murder in Africa. You know, th that's that's not an acceptable argument. Um, sure. Uh, be profitable, um, uh, increase shareholder value, do these things. Uh, but they have to be within the bounds of uh, what generally accepted uh, ethical practices are in the year 2023. And, and the reason I say that is every one of these companies publicly proclaims that every participant in their supply chain is respected that their human rights are protected, that, they're, that the mining companies are, mining practices are done sustainably, that 100% of all the participants in their supply chain down to the mining level are ensured basic respect, dignity of labor, and so on. So they already make all these statements that are not true. And so you can't turn around and say, well, investors are making us pursue profits at any and all costs. And then also on the other side of your mouth, say, but we make sure we maintain international human rights norms. So the, the reality is um, the second half of that mandate, maintaining generally accepted standards of labor and human dignity, they're failing to do while pursuing every conceivable way of increasing shareholder value. Uh, and that's the part that's missing. And the question then, the real question for everyone to think about is, well, why is it okay to treat those people over there 
in that manner when we wouldn't treat our people over here in that way? You wouldn't send the children of Cupertino into toxic pits to be buried alive for cobalt. So how is it okay to send the children of the Congo? For money, for profit? No, it's because they were those are poor African people who have been enslaved and exploited for centuries. And in the back of the mind of the global economy, that makes it okay. You mentioned uh, one of a press release by one of the companies that is at the top of the cobalt chain. Uh, you write that while Tesla's, uh, this is actually not your, this is their statement, Tesla's statement. They write, while Tesla's responsible sourcing uh, practices apply to all materials and supply chain partners, we recognize the conditions associated with select artisanal mining, ASM, of cobalt in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. To assure the cobalt in Tesla's supply chain is ethically sourced, we have implemented targeted due diligence procedures for cobalt sourcing. For Damler, another company, uh, respect for human rights is a, a fundamental aspect of responsible corporate governance. We want our products to contain only raw materials and other materials that have been mined and produced without violating human rights and environmental standards. But is that even possible? How much do these small mining operations dominate the market? And if they do not dominate, how important are these small, less safe operations to the overall production of cobalt? How possible is it for them to fall in line within these limits when it comes to human rights and labor abuses? Is the problem not, you know, the cobalt miner or Tesla, but the weakness of the regulations? No, no. Look, let, first of all, these statements that uh, that come from these companies are, are words on paper. They, they, be, they bear no reflection to reality, at least vis-a-vis -vis cobalt mining in the Congo. Um, none, none of what any company is saying about uh, their supply chains of cobalt being untainted by child labor or that they ensure um, human dignity in the mining in, in the mining of cobalt and all of that. None of it is true. I've spent months on the ground and I never saw any, anyone working for these companies, representing these companies, uh, contracted by these companies, doing anything to ensure even the remotest dignity for the people scrounging cobalt out of the ground in the Congo that's fed up into their uh, gadgets and cars. And it's not a hard problem to fix. It's not a hard problem to fix at all. Figuring out how to make a, an EV battery pack is more complicated than figuring out how to make sure human dignity is preserved at the bottom of a supply chain. I mean, figuring out a smartphone is way more complicated than figuring out how to ensure children are in school and not in mines in the Congo. And the reason I say that is the following. Uh, it would only take a few simple steps to probably eliminate three-fourths of the harm and violence taking place in the Congo. Right now, these people who are down there scrounging cobalt out of the ground with their bare hands, with rebar and pickaxes, and cobalt, by the way, is toxic to touch and breathe. So they're being um, uh, exposed to toxic substances every single day. There are thousands, tens of thousands of young women with babies on their backs scrounging for cobalt. And those babies, along with their mothers, are inhaling toxic cobalt particulates every single day. So, uh, and they are paid a dollar a day, maybe two a day if they're lucky, uh, for companies worth trillions. Because that cobalt flows up the chain to those companies. And about one 
third of the cobalt coming out of the Congo is scrounged out of the ground by hand in these types of conditions. So that's one third of three fourths of the world's supply. That's an enormous component uh, of the global cobalt supply that is mined in utterly abusive, appalling and degrading conditions. Now the rest of it, the industrially mined cobalt, the other two thirds coming out of the Congo, is mined in conditions that are not sustainable at all. I mentioned millions of trees been, have been clear cut. Uh, toxic acids and industrial effluents just dumped into the water and the air everywhere. So even that cobalt is not remotely green or decent or sustainably mined. So the whole, the whole, the, the entire flow of, of the global supply of cobalt, in essence, when we're talking about three fourths of the world supply, is tainted by conditions that have dialed back the moral clock centuries. They're utterly ruinous and destructive. Now, how could you eliminate a substantial amount of the harm, as I, as I claim, uh, with a few small steps? Well, instead of paying people a dollar or two a day, which means they can't keep their children in school, so they have to bring children into the mines to also earn a dollar so the family can survive, Pay them $10 a day, a fixed wage, a, a day, okay? $10. And that means children can stay in school. And you have an enormous reduction in child labor very quickly. How about giving all these people some basic PPE, masks, gloves, and so on? How much would that cost? So now we're talking about just paying people $10 a day and giving them some gloves and goggles and masks. I mean, an expense that would be a rounding error on the balance sheets of companies at the top of their chain. And it would eliminate a lot of harm immediately. And yet they don't do it. And they don't do it because they don't think those people are worth it. So uh, I would assume then that you don't think we have to choose then between either ending exploitation or ending a modern life, because that is seems to be the attack that many of these industries take, whether it's plastics, they'll tell you we have to have plastics in order for us to have the equipment to do things like blood transfusions or something that is some sort of life-saving technology. We must have plastics in our uh, economy because these are the things that keep us alive. And I could see the exact same thing coming from anybody who benefits from cobalt mining, that they would say, we need all of this cobalt in order to have a modern life. And without this exploitation, we cannot give you that modern life. Or, you know, it's either exploitation or a modern life, or you're going to be paying a lot more for your smartphone. Are any of those things necessarily the case, that without this exploitation, we couldn't have this modern life, and without this exploitation, we couldn't have an accessible modern life? No, those arguments are all nonsense. I mean, let's go back uh, a couple of centuries and, 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 and take the following proposition. Uh, let's say uh, um, a slave owner in the South, in the American South, on a cotton plantation, said, look, I need to bullwhip and exploit these slaves, these 200 slaves, uh, every day, or you can't have your cotton shirt. I mean, we would reject that as just a nonsensical position. I mean, we, we would say that's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and, and the same is, same is true today. If, if someone were to make the argument, look, look, you, you can only have your smartphone and your EV 
if we destroy the people and environment of the Congo? It would be a non, it's a nonsensical argument because it's completely untrue. Um, it would cost almost nothing relative to the profits these companies have to pay people $10 a day instead of one or two. I mean, we're talking $1,000 smartphones and $100,000 cars, right? Does an increase in wages from one or $2 to 10 per day, is that going to bankrupt these companies so that they have to make the statement, well, it's either we exploit the people of the Congo or you don't get your phone. I mean, it's, it's, it's rubbish. It's complete rubbish. Now, would they make the argument, ah, oh, well, you know, then our stock price is really going to take a hit and our shareholders are going to be unhappy and all the 401k holders, all the retirements and pensions are going to be unhappy. Again, it's just nonsense. Um, it, there's no economic, meaningful economic impact, um, especially vis-a-vis tech and EV companies on ensuring basic human dignity and sustainable practices at the bottom of their chains. Conditions that they claim they're already maintaining. So that's what makes this so tragic is it's a de minimis expense and a de minimis amount of effort to actually, ad, actually achieve the claims they're making in terms of human dignity and sustainability at the bottom of their mining supply chains. And still they don't do it. Still they point the finger at someone else's bearing responsibility or perhaps concoct these nonsensical arguments that, well, you know, if we have to uh, treat the people of Africa like they're the same as you and me, then you can't have a smartphone. Or your smartphone, instead of a co costing $1,000, will cost $2,000. It's, it's silliness uh, and should be utterly rejected as non the nonsense it is. So we can protect the coal miners. We can do a better job of protecting the coal miners. Can we do a better job uh, when it comes to protecting the environment, when it comes to cobalt mining or lithium mining or any of the kind of mining that we are going to be depending upon as we move more and more towards electric vehicles? Look, if a, co a cobalt mine were to open up in your neighborhood, for the sake of argument, uh, it would it would be uh, compelled to adhere to certain uh, sustainability practices, right? Uh, if they had to chop down 200,000 trees, they'd be required to plant 200,000 someplace nearby. If they had to uh, uh, use up a certain amount of groundwater to run their operations, they'd be required to account for that in some way, treat the water and return it back into the environment. If the mineral processing facility at that mine required the use of highly toxic industrial acids, they would be required to contain them and dispose of them in a way that did not pollute the surrounding neighborhoods. Well, if that's how the mining company would have to operate, if it was in your backyard or my backyard, why why does it not have to operate that way if it's in their backyard? It, are their trees not worth the same as ours? Uh, is their water not worth the same as ours? Are their lives not worth the same as ours? And crucially, do we preserve our environment for our children and grandchildren by destroying theirs? None of that makes any sense. Yet that's what's happening every day. So that the the truth is 
these ideas that, well, it's just hard, it's expensive, it's complicated, it's, it all falls apart when you realize no one is asking these companies to do anything in Africa that they wouldn't have to do in their own backyards. You point out that the Congolese government has historically gone to great lengths to obscure conditions in the mining provinces. Anyone seeking to expose the reality, such as journalists, NGO workers, researchers like yourself, or foreign news media, is heavily monitored during their stay. The Congolese military and other security forces are omnipresent in mining areas, making access to mining sites dangerous and at times impossible. Perceived troublemakers can be arrested tortured or worse. So how close are those at the highest reaches of Congolese government to the top of the cobalt profit chain? How much can the Congolese people look towards their government for reform when it comes to labor abuses and environmental abuses in cobalt mining? Poor poor governance in the Congo is a part of the problem. Um, And that's, you know, that's a reality that um, persists across the post-colonial world. You know, m- much of Africa only achieved independence in the 1960s. I mean, a lot of your listeners were alive at that time, um, or maybe were very young. Uh, uh, so that's not that long ago that these countries just gained their independence. And um, they gained independence in conditions of poverty um, and, and civil strife and often conflict. Um, that was then uh, fed uh, and continued to be stoked by their former colonial powers. I'll just give you an example for the Congo, um, uh, which to show why governance is so hard and why corruption is often um, the nature of governance in in poor countries and war-torn countries, which contributes to the exploitation of local people. No question about it. Uh, Congo was in, gained independence from Belgium in 1960, and they conducted elections and democratically elected their first prime minister, a gentleman named Patrice Lumumba. And he won because he had an anti-colonial vision. After centuries of slave trade and uh, more than a century of Belgian uh, colonialism, uh, Lumumba said uh, our minerals and most of the Congolese economy at independence was Um, the mining sector. Uh, He said our minerals and the value of them should be for our people, Uh, not for the Belgians, not for the uh, uh, Europe. Uh, It should be for the Congolese people. And he wanted to keep the country's mineral wealth inside the Congo for the benefit of its people. Uh, Now, without boring your listeners with a very fascinating history, the long and short of it is within six months, Belgium, Uh, the U.S. and even the U.N. conspired to assassinate Lumumba and replace him with a a bloody, corrupt dictator who would keep the minerals flowing to the West. Uh, So the Congo never had a chance. You know, their one chance at at independence to reclaim the value of their resources uh, and reclaim uh, uh, their own independence and, and dignity for their people was very violently taken from them. And since that time, uh, the lesson was, if you want to run a country in Africa, you do it our way, you keep the wealth flowing to us, or you pay the price. And that was the lesson taught to the Congo within months of independence. And that's why the country has been racked by corrupt governance 
At least that's one of the reasons why the country has been racked by co- corrupt governance ever since. So we're in denial, well, or ignorant of the conditions that cobalt is mined in. We're in denial or ignorant of the worker conditions uh, for the people who do work in the mines. And it seems like we're also in denial about our recent past when it comes to the United States, the UN, as you point out, Belgium's involvement when it comes to Congo. Are we also in a denial, denialism about our continued colonialism? if you want to call it neocolonialism or whatever it is, in Congo? Are we also in a not only just a historical denialism when it comes to people who are concerned about critical race theory and that kind of thing, dating back to the 19th century, but also in denial about our recent history of overthrowing democratically elected leaders around the world and replacing them with dictators? Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, we, we don't look back uh or and we certainly don't learn in school uh the role that we played and that western europe played not just in uh the enslavement of africa and people in the global south uh and not just the colonial period uh but sort of the the insidious manner in which um uh the the neo-colonial dynamic between europe and africa was maintained violently maintained um, post-independence. Uh, and, and I think, so what happens is people just look and say, oh, you know, Africa, the countries are so corrupt and, and they can't govern themselves properly and that's their problem. But you see, colonialism taught colonies that government is a system of theft. Government means powerful people, a handful of powerful people will ransack and siphon out the value of a country for their own benefit. Um, And and that lesson has been reproduced post-independence in many countries. And when there were bold leaders who wanted to do things differently, who wanted uh, to preserve the value of their resources for their own people, they were dispatched. And Lumumba is is the prime example. He, He was the voice of Africa in the late 1950s uh, up till he won the election in 1960. I mean, he gave a speech um, at the ceremony where the Belgians, you know, handed over the, the colony to, to the Congolese people. He gave a speech um, about what it meant to be colonized and for resources to be violently stolen for centuries. Uh, and that speech rang across the continent. And, and so what happened is the people in, in Europe um, and the UN and the US, uh, wait a minute, this is going the wrong way. You know, this guy can't, we can't, he, we can't let this guy live. And, and that's exactly what they did. And it wasn't just that, you know, they silently and quietly dispatched him. No, they tortured the guy. They shot him. They chopped him to pieces. They dissolved his body in acid. They ground his bones so they could never be found, except for one tooth that was held as a souvenir by one of the Belgian assassins. That tooth, by the way, was only returned last year to the Congo. So, I mean, that's that's the kind of violence that was um, uh, inflicted on newly independent African countries by their, you know, one week earlier, colonial overlords to say, we're still in charge here. We may have signed a piece of paper that says you're free, but we're still in charge and we still have the 
the means and the motivation to violently oppress you unless you go along with our will. And that's the lesson Africa was taught. Many African countries were taught just after, quote unquote, independence. Um, and the U.S. and the U.N. played roles in that. I mean, the U.S., the CIA had a plot to assassinate Lumumba with poison toothpaste. Uh, and when they couldn't get the toothpaste um, close enough to him for him to use, that's when they hatched this other thing of just chopping him to pieces and, and dissolving him in acid. Is Can this be solved just by me not buying a, a smartphone, not buying a cell phone? Is there a consumer response to this that can solve the problem? Well, I think, uh, you know, the consumers like you and I, uh, the people listening here, we should all feel outrage and we should feel outrage for the following reason. We have been made unwitting participants in a colossal invasion of the human rights of the people in the heart of Africa. And we have been made unwitting participants in the destruction and the contamination of the environment in the heart of Africa. When you and I buy a smartphone and plug it in, we don't think we're plugging in the death of African children. And if you and I buy an EV, we think we're making a good, sustainable green choice. We don't think we're making this green choice at the consequence of destroying and polluting uh, the heart of Africa. So we've been made unwitting participants by companies that are treating the people and environment of Africa as a disposable colonial expense account to their profit motive. So we should be outraged by that. Uh, we should clamor and agitate for accountability at the top of the chain. I think every individual has to make a personal choice. Do I need to upgrade my phone every year or can I use the one I have for as long as it may work? Um, and similarly, if, if people are in the market to buy an EV, yes, it's, it's conceivably a, a responsible green choice to make, but it isn't. For the people in Africa. And so you have to clamor as a consumer and maybe even a shareholder for accountability by the company that's selling you that car to ensure on a, on a reliably certified and an independently certified basis that the people and environment of Africa aren't paying the price for that EV. It's not good enough for companies to just say that their supply chains are clean. That has to be independently verified. They need to A, do the work of cleaning up their supply chains and then B, someone other than the company needs to go on the ground and certify and ensure uh, that what they're saying is true. One last question for you, Siddharth. We've been speaking with Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. You can follow Siddharth on Twitter at Siddharth Kara. Find Siddharth on Instagram at Siddharth.Kara. Thanks again to listener Patrick L., who suggested we have Siddharth on the show. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write, although conditions for the Congo's cobalt miners remain exceedingly bleak, there is nevertheless cause to be hopeful. Awareness of their plight is growing, and with it, hope that their voices will no longer call out into an abyss, but into the hearts of the people at the other end of the chain, who are able to see at last that the blood-caked corpse of that child lying in the dirt 
is one of their own. So last week, when speaking with ethicist, historian, and political scientist Ariane Chabelle d'Apollonia about her book, Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society, she uh, mentions what she calls primordialism. That is a belief found often on the right, but with centrist liberals as well, that there is nothing that can be done when it comes to race, that people have, are, and always will be racist. When we apply that to capitalism, how much of an obstacle to challenging the abusive conditions of mining is the normalization, the tolerance, and the acceptance that capitalism needs exploitation and there's nothing you can do about it other than do whatever you can to limit how much you are exploited. How much is the obstacle to fixing or addressing the conditions in mining operations? How much is the obstacle, the normalization, the tolerance, and the acceptance that capitalism needs exploitation? You know, you started with uh, quoting E.D. Morrell um, uh, and the first Congo horror more than a century ago. And that's at a time when colonialism was the way of things. You know, slavery was just a, a recent, recent um, uh, uh, practice that had been uh, outlawed on paper. Uh, and yet Morrell and people like him formed a human rights movement that included the likes of Roger Casement, Mark Twain, Booker T. Washington, all banding together across space and time um, uh, to shine light on Leopold's genocidal um, ransacking of the Congolese people, um, and they prevailed. You know, Leopold was forced to, to part with his colony. Um, uh, now, it's not that the Belgian state that took over ran things any better, but they had a mission which was to bring truth out into the world, uh, a world that saw Africa as worth less than the global north, and they brought the horrors out and achieved some measure of progress and justice. Uh, the fight never ends. Uh, there will always be racism. I think there is racism inherent in the underbelly and the shadows of the, uh, of, of the global capitalist order. Uh, but truth seekers uh, have to come together across space and time to persist and achieve every little measure of justice that they can. And it can often start with just a handful of people who wake up one day and say, this injustice cannot stand. Uh, and it may take time and it and it will take time. But but progress is inevitable and people of conscience will find victories over the forces of ignorance and greed and racism and intolerance uh, step by step. Because I fundamentally believe more people in the world are fundamentally and essentially good and kind in their heart than there are people who are violent and racist and uh, driven by avarice without moral boundary. Of course, there will always be those people, but more of humanity is shaded good. I, I believe that. And I think history is filled with evidence of the relentless pursuit of justice, um, enormous victories, of course, followed by setbacks, but the arc points upwards. I mean, if we look at the long, long arc of human history, it's pointed in the right direction, um, uh, inevitably pointed in the right direction. And, and so that I hold hope in that. And that's why I say there's hope for the Congo uh, and there's hope for this ugliness that is that is at the bottom of our rechargeable lives, because I don't think 
people want to plug in the blood and death of African children just so they can check social media uh, and they don't want to plug in a car thinking they're making a green choice, uh, but it comes at the expense of destroying the African environment. The, 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 cons- the average consumer, the average citizen of conscience, I think will reject that formulation of an economic order and find some way, whether it's small uh, or enormous, to pursue a more just and equitable economic order, uh, particularly at the bottom of cobalt supply chains. It's amazing that you have hope after what you have witnessed, and it's a signal to all of us that we should all still have hope despite what we have seen. We have been speaking with Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Thank you so much for being on our show today. This is an exceptional book, and you should be very proud of your work. Thank you so much for being on because this is very, very enlightening. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your gracious invitation. I appreciate it, too. All right. Take care. Staring into the abyss, and you should, too, this is hell if the abyss of cobalt mines where we bury all our guilt by using phones that can lead to deadly outcomes for impoverished workers. If, if that freaked you out as much as it freaked me out, show your appreciation by becoming a supporter of This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support or by subscribing to our weekly special bonus, This Is Hell podcast, our Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time every Thursday morning and is podcast shortly after again on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And on our most recent Patreon podcast this past Thursday, we continued our conversation sparked by last week's question from hell for listeners on difficult work experiences and how they were overcome. My response had to do with working in the more informal market and a work experience that I overcame by getting out of that industry. My response led me to being attracted to a career in crime it was uh, it, it made me consider my my short life in petty crime and what happens to my past crimes when the law suddenly no longer considered them crimes spoiler alert when crimes are legalized the law does what the law always does and that is protect the interests of the rich to legally profit off the law which the wealthy heavily influence and a new legal framework is put into place to keep the rich rich and the poor screwed. Also on Patreon, we wrapped up our three-week series of interviews on the Russia-Ukraine war, a series we began back in February on the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the war. Over those three weeks, we played interviews with past guests from 2008, 2012, and 2014, all of which were, to some degree, predicted exactly what would eventually happen several years later in Ukraine. In the final installment, we played a conversation we had with sociologist Volodymyr Eshenko, who spoke to us live from Kyiv. His recent writing at the time in The Guardian included Maidan or Anti-Maidan. Volodymyr explained that the Ukraine situation required more nuance, as Ukraine had not, in fact, experienced a genuine revolution back in 2014. Merely a change of elites, according to Volodymyr. But you can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. 
Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is how do you identify yourself? Uh, terrible wording. Terrible mm, wording. Should yeah, have been how really, do you self-identify. Really, really botched that one. Yeah, I did. Such a uh, huge softball, too, and I really screwed up. Erica XE um, says, a complex series of tattoos that I can reconstruct my identity enough to locate my wife's killer before my memory resets. Uh, so if you've seen the movie Memento, you know what that's all about. <laughs> oh, man. I love deep references like that. Yes, um, I do too. Andrew uh, says, the monkey brain and the monkey suit over there, officer. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to identify yourself. Uh Jefferson W. Uh, says, a thumb and finger on my forehead. Because <laughs> you're a big loser. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... Currently, yeah, that's or the number seven. Seven, I don't know. maybe you're lucky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Neil C. says, I'll have to ask my therapist and get back to you on this one. <laughs> yes, I think mm-hmm. everybody should do that. Totally. Um, How do you identify me to your therapist? <laughs> I identify you as my client. <laughs> that's right. Um Old Grouch says, I ask my wife, she always tells me the absolute truth of who I am. I usually avoid the question. Yeah, that's a good idea, too. Old Grouch, you won the uh, question from hell last week. Congratulations. Uh, How about one more? Um, All right, one more. All right, uh, this one's short and sweet. Dan K identifies himself by saying, Hello, Dan. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, and it wasn't Dan, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, when we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll have more of your answers to the question from hell later this week. It's now time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. Oh, the Soviet Union. It's got a lot of history for sure. I know I talked about them Ruskies last week, and I'm usually an Americanist, but this is my segment, and I do what I damn well please. And well, Russia is still in the headlines, so it's kind of topical still. Of course, the Soviet Union was not just Russia, but that's a point I'll get to later. So one big quote-unquote argument you will often hear from white right-wingers when it comes to the issue of socialism, so socialized medicine, socialized anything really, is that this is the way to become Soviet Russia or something, as if that was a bad thing. And, well, depending on what era we're talking about, it surely is, or was. But Americans in general don't really have much of an idea of what the Soviet Union actually was, how it functioned. And most people know even less about the massive, monumental changes that the country went through over time. So, in a way, the next few segments are not quite so much past inside the present and more of a here's some stuff y'all should have learned in school. 
Because, well, the Soviet Union was America's sworn enemy for most of the 20th century, but very few people will tell you what that place actually was about. And first off, let me make something very clear. While my politics certainly are pretty far to the left, I am personally no big fan of the Soviet Union per se. It was, after all, throughout its history, a fairly oppressive state, even if the degrees of oppression varied drastically. It was also a surprisingly conservative state, just that Soviet conservatism looked different than American conservatism. Both were and are not great. And then, while ostensibly opposed to imperialism, it was also somewhat imperial itself. So, what was the Soviet Union, actually? The USSR, the Union of Socialist Soviet Republics, was a somewhat federalist, multinational state that existed between 1922 and 1992. Most people think that the 1917 revolution was the start date which is a misconception. The revolutions, plural, of 1917 were followed by years of turmoil and civil war, and only after that was done with did we actually have a Soviet Union. Uh, First, in February of 1917, the Russians uh, revolted and overthrew the monarchy, overthrew the Tsar. And then they revolted again in October, overthrowing the interim system, and started off that whole socialism thing. At the time, Russia was still fighting World War I, by the way, which now Soviet Russia bowed out of in early 1918 with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, because they had their own civil war to fight. And in this civil war, reactionary forces, so forces that were um, loyal to the Tsar and the monarchy, basically, and like had a whole array of, dish- of different uh, uh, allegiances, battled the revolutionary Red Army across what used to be the Russian Empire. But the forces of reaction lacked the unity of the revolutionary armies and militias they tried to defeat and eventually lost. At the end of the Russian Civil War in 1922, the then newly emerging Soviet Union had lost about 13 million people, most to war, famine, and disease, but also to anti-Jewish pogroms because those are just the thing that happened a lot in Europe at that time and also two people just simply hoofing it out of there to get away from the utter chaos that reigned in those years. The early political system of the Soviet Union that emerged in these days was in large parts based on the works of Karl Marx and realized by Vladimir Lenin. Lenin set out to create a nation that was governed by an interlocking system of worker councils. Every business, every village, every farm should elect from their midst a council of workers, of basically, you know, like everybody could could be on these councils. And these councils would then send elected representatives from themselves to higher councils, to regional, national, etc. councils, culminating in a supreme workers' council that would govern the country. There was, of course, much more to the government of the USSR that eventually came together, and not all these things actually quite necessarily worked out in the way that Lenin imagined them. Um, But just describing that would take me a whole segment, so I'll leave it at this brief sketch. The Russian word for council in this context is, as you may have guessed, Soviet. So the Union of Socialist Soviet Republics means a Union of Socialist Republics governed by workers' councils. Russia, by the way, wasn't the only place in Europe at the time where people after World War I tried their hand at creating a workers' council republic. Post-war Germany also had a couple of those, just as an aside. The Soviet Union consisted, as the name implies, of several republics. 
some of which, like Georgia and Armenia, had been Sovietized and annexed to the Union by force after these uh, regions, after these, uh, uh, well, former members of the Russian Empire had been briefly independent following the Rus Russian Revolution and Soviet Russia's exit from World War I. The central core of the Soviet Union was what became known as the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. Yeah, that's kind of a mouthful. Um, Completing the political transformation of the Russian government took some time to come to fruition, and as things began to calm down, the famines ended, and uh, life in the newly formed country slowly began to somewhat normalize, Vladimir Lenin died. He was succeeded as head of state by a power vacuum and a power struggle, and out of that came uh, emerged victoriously the guy Lenin himself had explicitly thought too dangerous and unfit for the position. I'm talking, of course, about... Our bro, uh, no, not really, not really, not really, Joseph Stalin. Stalin was Georgian. He uh, came up through the revolution and worked his way up through the ranks in the party. In the years preceding Lenin's death, he had been responsible for restructuring the party, which itself consolidated all power in the Soviet system. And Stalin then in turn consolidated the power inside the party for himself. And in the years after Lenin's death, he took over as party leader and therefore as leader of the Soviet Union. And as I said, this did not happen overnight. Lenin died in 1924 and Stalin took over, uh, basically took four years to decisively fill in this uh, power vacuum after Lenin's death. As party leader, Stalin then pursued a program that uh, forced industrialization of the country, combined with a forced collectivization of agriculture. Um, so it's nationalization, collectivization. Uh, the Soviet Union had to become com competitive with the capitalist world. That was sort of like Stalin's mantra um, that that they had to become independent and, uh, you know, like basically outcompete the capitalist world, show everybody how great they were. And agriculture had to become more productive. Industry had to become more productive. And to pursue these goals, the middling kulak class peasants who owned uh, the land that they worked on were largely dispossessed. Within a few years, this forced collectivization program struck not just peasants who owned substantial amounts of land, but basically any independent farmer who resisted collectivization and was therefore branded as a kulak, as a trader. And that meant that farms were uh, basically nationalized and reorganized into larger agricultural units. In the country, in, uh, in, 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 uh, uh, due to this whole process, the country slid Again, close to open civil war between farmers and the government, Russia, uh, Russian society, but uh, however, had massively changed over the course of the 1920s. And now most peasants who resisted the new model society were regarded as traitors to the revolution by the rest of the country. And soon anyone who would uh, who could be made responsible for shortcomings, be it in agriculture or industry, uh, would be branded a traitor or a counter-revolutionary and put before a show trial. Um and when then about 5 million people starved in the early 1930s following a series of bad harvests, which was exacerbated by forced collectiv collectivization of what little food remained, especially in the Ukrainian countryside, Stalin essentially blamed all of this on the kulaks who remained. Uh, in 1928, the first five-year plan was formulated in Moscow, which prioritized massive industrialization efforts. Um, so these five-year plans was basically the because this is a planned economy. So uh, it, the central, basically, the central government says in these next five years we're going to do this and that and this. 
Um, and then the rest of the country has basically catch up with that. And sometimes it's worked and sometimes it didn't. Um, and that just as an aside. During this time, the new uh, a lot of things were built, new planned cities, new mines were explored, and a plethora of new factories opened. Um, so the industrialization really went ahead pretty quickly and pretty successfully. But while uh, that that happened while industrialization worked out pretty well agricultural production lagged behind as as shown in these massive famines um and many grand construction projects were undertaken during that time from thousands of mile uh, of miles of railroad access uh, uh, that newly opened siberian mines to gigantic tractor factories in the industrial centers um but the grandiose projects and the grandiose plans only really worked for some sectors and Stalin's leadership successfully then turned the agrarian Russian society um, of the pre-revolutionary times into an industrial society. Agriculture, however, kept lacking behind because these collective farms and collectively centrally planned agriculture just is not really a thing that that worked very well. Um, and so the, the collective farms failed to fulfill the lofty plan goals. And that would remain an issue throughout basically the entirety of Soviet history. Farm, farming, agriculture was just an issue that, that never, they never, never quite got to work out so well. And now I see that Chuck is frantically pointing at the clock, so I better make a break here. Uh, the history of the Soviet Union is complex, if not convoluted, and I will return to it next week. Um, talk about the run-up to World War II. World War II and its aftermath and the early Cold War, if I get there. Um, so if there ever was a hell on earth, Soviet Russia during that time, during the World War II, is a very close contender. Um, but, you know, more because of the invading Nazis than because of being Soviet. So stay tuned. Stay tuned to uh, next week when we will have another installment from Seb on the history of the Soviet Union. Thank you very much, Sebastian, and enjoy the rest of your week. Oh, yeah. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so earlier today I was mentioning how I get this uh, small town local weekly newspaper from northern Michigan. And inside of the newspaper they had a flyer that says Senior and Retiree Survival Workshop 2023. And it's a free educational workshop for age 50 and older. All are welcome. And it's put on by something called Senior Care of Michigan. So it sounds like it's an official entity uh, some sort of authority, maybe linked to the government. Who knows? But they are holding this workshop at the Soaring Eagle Casino. So they're having a workshop on how on uh, having an educational workshop on how to survive your retirement at a casino, and not just any casino, the Soaring Eagle Casino in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, in the Ojibwe room, because while telling retirees how to uh, finance their retirement, why not do it in a room that reminds us of rapacious colonialism? It's the most bizarre little flyer I have seen in a very long time. This is not the media. This is hell. Thanks to listener Patrick L. again, who suggested we have Siddharth Kara on the show today. Will, who are our next guests up here on This Is Hell? Um, our next guests uh, include historian Carrie Lee Merritt, a co-editor of the collection Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. Uh, Dr. Merritt returns to This Is Hell. She was a guest on the show back in 2017 to discuss a book that was selected as one of our listeners' favorites of the year, Masterless Men, 
poor whites and slavery in the antebellum south it was a great interview and people yeah. should go check that up on uh check it out that, online that book was very important to my half-finished abandoned uh, dissertation oh there you go uh and, and then, then uh, wednesday and then wednesday we have uh writer ethnographer and human rights activist michael gould wartowski who'll be on to talk about his tom dispatch article welcome to the predator state where the scorpions on the corner might just kill you which is about the killing of Tyre Nichols by Memphis police unit called Scorpion. Also coming up later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live again on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will have a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. We'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, and we will be revealing next week's guests as well. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for the past inside the present. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>